Veterinary Medical College's Diversity and Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to its member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So um, we are very excited today to welcome our guests from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, Dr. Mark Markell and Dr. Lynn Mackey. Um, and today's show is about diversity and accreditation. So a uh, hot topic that we'll get into. So um, as is our custom, I'm gonna ask my guests to introduce themselves. So Dr. Markell, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'll tell more about this when we talk about the importance of diversity, but I uh, grew up in Southern California in San Francisco. I uh, went to veterinary school at the University of California, Davis, and then did an in internship at the University of Pennsylvania in large animal medicine and surgery, then a residency in equine surgery at Davis. Uh, finished that and became a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons uh, in the late 80s. Uh, then went to the Mayo Clinic, Mayo Graduate School of Medicine, and did a PhD in biophysics before coming to the University of Wisconsin in 1990 as an equine surgeon, uh, established an orthopedic research laboratory. Uh, about five years in, became a department chair of our medicine department. And then five years after that, became an associate dean for advancement in charge of all the fundraising for the school, as well as kind of strategic planning. And then five years ago in September, became the dean of the School of Veterinary Medicine. So you went West Coast to East Coast to West Coast. <laughs> one year on the East Coast, yeah. <laughs> Up till about a year ago, more than half my life was in California, but now I can't say that anymore. All right. My life's in Wisconsin. Wow. All right. All right. Dr. Mackey, why don't you tell us about yourself? So my name is Lynn Mackey. Um, I have lived in Michigan or Wisconsin my whole life, so I have no fun East Coast, West Coast travel back and forth. Um, I serve as the Associate Dean for Student Academic Affairs here at the Vet School. I've done that for the last five years. Prior to that, I was Director of Admissions for the DBM program here. And um, prior to that, I worked at the School of Pharmacy on the UW-Madison campus as an admissions coordinator and an academic advisor. Not a veterinarian by training, so different, different path than what uh, Mark has taken. Well, there are a few of us non-veterinarians that get to hang out. <laughs> You're extremely valuable. That's what I guess. So I have to mention that this is the second time in the history of our show that we feature University of Wisconsin. We had Dr. William Gillis on, on our very, very first episode of the show um, a couple of years ago, um, talking about the WISCARES program, which is just um, such an amazing, amazing program and such a great model in terms of having the, um, the College of Veterinary Medicine and the College of Social Work engage with the community. So I'm sure maybe we'll probably touch a little bit on um, the impact of that with respect to um, our topic today. So, Dr. Markell, you were really a big advocate of um, advancing some, you know, including some diversity language in the standards and the accreditation standards. How did that all come about? So, I, I'll start a little bit with why I think diversity and inclusion is 
really important to an organization and to a profession like veterinary medicine. As I said earlier, I was born in Southern California, but my father was in the Navy for 20 years, actually. And we went around the Pacific, um, Hawaii, Japan, stationed at two different bases in Southern California. And then when I was in junior high school, transferred up to Treasure Island, the island in the middle of the San Francisco Bay Bridge, and was there for junior high school and high school. And in, the, in our Navy experience, having lived on many different naval bases, an incredibly diverse workforce, and it was um, really powerful, the strength of that diversity in allowing the Navy to succeed and allow th those individuals, whether it be officers or enlisted people to succeed, and, and really being exposed to people of all different backgrounds, races, religions um, in that experience. As I kind of moved up to Northern California um, and from eighth grade on, uh, as you might imagine, San Francisco is a very diverse place. That's where I went to junior high school and high school. My junior high school was over 90% Asian Americans. My high school was 75% Asian Americans. Really um, learned to understand kind of the value of a diverse uh, set of cultures. Uh, the other piece that kind of I was very much exposed to in San Francisco, as you might imagine, uh, kind of a leading voice for the, at that time, called lesbian and gay communities uh, within our high school and broadly across the city and now LGBTQ+. I certainly understand, and I'm probably the voice, not the voice, but a voice on this campus. When people say the word diversity, I immediately raise my hand and say, well, what are we talking about? And, and I know, and we'll talk about it later, when Lisa and I were on a task force to focus on diversity, it was more than just talking about race, it was talking about background, it was talking about religion, it was talking about gender identification um, or gender. And um, I think that's critical when you're having a discussion to understand kind of where you're coming from. The other piece that really kind of lent me to highly value diversity as uh, an important institution or important philosophy, as I was an athlete from when I can remember through college playing football and lacrosse, and as you might imagine, many of those teams were amazingly diverse. and really the strength of those people working together was, was a testament to that diversity. So I think all those combined made me, um, from what I can remember, very much value diversity as an important component of the su success of any group of people, certainly the veterinary medical profession here at the School of Veterinary Medicine within the school itself or, or more broadly you know, across the country. So how did that um, how did that bring you to the accreditation standards? So what happened there was I became dean in September of 2012, and we almost immediately started our strategic planning process, and that took about six months. And through those discussions, we, had, as all of us did, had you know all of us do had a previous strategic plan where the language in there was more about tolerance, and we had maybe a day long discussion about whether we wanted that term to be tolerance or inclusion. And I very much pushed and, and others did as well to really modify that language and have it be inclusion. And we kind of coursing through our strategic priorities in almost every area, and we have seven of them, was diversity and inclusion as being an important component of what we want to do with regard to students or faculty or employees or what, how we teach our students in their curriculum. It was in 2014 when we began our self-study for accreditation, and we began that probably in the summer of 14, finalized it as a final draft um, in, the, in December of 14. But as we were preparing it, it struck me 
since I was the one that was kind of responsible for pulling it all together, that there really was only like one line in one standard about diversity as far as language. And it's about teaching our um, students about cultural identification and tolerance or some language right. like that was in that original document. And I, it struck me that that wasn't right. And so I, 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 as I kind of became more familiar with the ABMC in the fall of 14, they asked, we have a meeting every winter, the deans get together from all the accredited veteran medical schools and they asked, what should a topic be? And I suggested that we talk about diversity, particularly as it related to accreditation. And ultimately what that translated into was uh, a, a session led by Eleanor Green, who's a dean at Texas A&M, Calvin Johnson and me, um, talking about diversity. In advance of that, I think Lisa was the one that was responsible for this piece. We did a questionnaire for all the institutions about and there's a variety of questions which I'm not going to go through, but you know, how does that institution value diversity or support diversity, whether we're talking about admissions or curriculum or hiring practices or those kinds of things. So we had a lot of information from the member institutions with regard to what they did. And then in Feb January of that year of 15, we led a discussion about diversity. And what came out of that um, was the creation of a task force, which I chaired. And Lisa um, basically was our staff person in support of it that said, why don't you try to prepare a white paper or a position paper on how the accreditation standards could be modified um, to reflect our values with regard to diversity and inclusion. Lisa had already done the research. We looked at dentistry and medicine and other health professions, and we were really the outlier it, you know, at that stage in 2014-15 with the, our lack of diversity language or um, specifications with regard to those standards. So over the course of the next couple of months, Lisa worked with the committee or the task force. We created a draft position statement. The AAVMC has a meeting every March. We presented it there, talked about it there, spent another couple of months kind of continuing to modify it. Really the hard part or the not challenging, but the part you had to be cognizant of as a reminder we're an international organization. So diversity for the US might be vastly different than diversity in another country, might be different than diversity in Canada or Mexico or elsewhere. So we needed to be careful on how we crafted the language that would be reflective of all of our member institutions, not just, for example, a US accredited school or college of veterinary medicine. So by that summer, when we met in Boston for the ABMA meeting and the ABMC meeting, we had a final draft that was approved by the board to take to the Council on Education for its September meeting. It was given, it was submitted to Council on Education in September of 2015. And then over the course of the next 18 months or so, the Council on Education discussed it. They created their own set of um, drafts of what should happen with the standards. They were very supportive of the concept. We had we had um, proposed that six of the 11 standards would have modifications reflecting diversity. They ultimately approved six changes, but they changed one. We had one in finance, which is standard two. They didn't put one there, but they did add one in standard 11, which is outcomes, which I thought was very appropriate. So still six modifications. They then sent that out for comment to all of the AVMA membership, as well as all of the accredited veterinary medical colleges. And ultimately in March of this year, 2017 approved um, those modifications to six of the standards um, for count for accreditation. So that's how it happened. It happened really fast from the ABMC perspective. 
um, a little bit slower on the COE side, but um, still, you know, from when we started talking about it to when it was finally implemented, a little bit over two years. So pretty cool. Sure. This is pretty um, exciting uh, discussions in those um, those task force meetings. One of the big I think decisions that that group initially um, took on was whether or not um, the AAVMC would be recommending a standalone standard or language that you know would be um, infused throughout the existing standards. Um, can you tell me a little bit about kind of uh, <laughs> how that discussion went? Or we had, I mean, there was some real interesting and and strong. Um, discussions about around which approach to take. You're right. I mean, I, I think, and I, you know, I think that there's strengths to both, and that that's what was discussed, right? Some people really thought that having a standalone standard that was very much focused on the importance of diversity would give it greater strength and power uh, as far as kind of its influence. Adding a 12th standard, for example, to the current 11. Others of us, and I was in this camp, thought that. If you look at how the standards are structured, whether it's organization or finance or students or curriculum or research or um, outcomes, I thought, and in the end, the majority of the committee members thought or task force members thought that having diversity language in each of those pieces, so you could talk about students and, and why diversity was important with regard to students and admissions, or we could talk about curriculum what kinds of things or what should you focus on in curriculum with diversity or, or with faculty recruitment or the research that you conduct. And importantly, even though we didn't recommend that, now with our outcomes assessment, how you measure it. And so I think uh, in the end, even though both had their um, supporters and both I think would have been very positive for, the, for accreditation and the COE, um, I think we ultimately made the right decision by trying to infuse it throughout as many of the standards that made sense, um, rather than focus it on a single standard. Yeah, sure. So now that we have language after that lengthy process, um, what do you both think of, of the language that, um, that came out at the other end? Some of it um, was very close to what we recommended and some of it um, had, you know, underwent pretty significant change. Some of it even went further than what we recommended. I'll start and then let Lynn continue. I thought the language is awesome. I mean, I think the one significant change which we hadn't really considered, although we had talked about it, is in almost every time they talk about diversity, the language is in accordance with, with state and federal laws. Um, mm -hmm. Again, each state is different. Some states allow some things and don't allow others, and certainly each country might be different. So I think having that language in there, it's not meant to be an escape, but certainly meant to be a pathway that you're not trying to get a, an institution into legal problems by trying to do something to become accredited when it's not allowed by their particular local or, or regional law. So, I, But beyond that, the thing I was most excited about, and I can't even remember, Lisa, whether we talked about it, was um, the fact that it's now included in standard 11 and yeah. that it's part of outcomes. And I think that was that's really powerful because it's really now even though we really do measurements in each of the things when we talk about standards, that's another one when we talk about outcomes of our students. But I'd like Linda to kind of weigh in on her thoughts about it as well. Yeah. Well, I do like that um, we know that each university and college and each region um, is, is doing things differently according to the laws or according to what, um, what they can do um, within that stage or that country. 
but I also like that the language allows it to be specific at Wisconsin. What can we do here at Wisconsin that's authentic, that helps us to advance how we talk about diversity, whether it be racial diversity or socioeconomic class or whatever aspect of it that we're focusing or all aspects of it that we're focusing on. So I like that it can be individual to um, the institution. And that I think that having it infused to all the different standards further shows the commitment. So someone can say, well, this is important, um, but if we're not measuring it and it's not part of this accreditation standard, um, it could potentially feel like an add-on or something that's that's nice to have. Um, but this is really saying this is central and this is core into what we in the profession and we in the universities and colleges believe um, should be part of our students' experience and part of our, our faculty and staff. And we're all committed to, to making this happen. Sure. I have to say one of the things that I think I was most ex excited about um, was in the um, in the standard related to faculty. Um, one of the things that I guess we didn't really talk about in our recommendations was about um, salary equity. Um, and that was something that the um, the council um, included in the language. And um, and and so it was really it was exciting for me to see because it did kind of say, ah, this is something that we didn't talk about, um, but something that's clearly important. And this demonstration of, of kind of um, thinking about um, how folks are, are um, compensated for their work. And so um, that was an important inclusion, I think, for me. I agree. I mean, the, there's been a couple of faculty here have done some, uh, some studies principally focused on gender equity as you move up within veterinary medical schools or colleges from the assistant to the associate to full professor rank and nationally there's still significant disparity between men and women even when you take into account years in service and so it's absolutely something that all of us need to continue to focus on not just gender broadly sure. with diverse groups as well but certainly gender should be included in that mix too given that as you know 75 or 80 percent of our of our students are women um, it's really important to make sure that, that there's parity there across the board. Sure. So we've got a lot of viewers um, tuning in. If you have a question, please um, drop a note um, into um, the chat and we will definitely uh, address those questions as we get them. So um, so what will you be doing um, with, 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 you know, related to the, the new language at Wisconsin? I'm going to let Lynn talk about it, but we've got a lot of things that we're doing uh, that are really exciting. So I was going to let her kind of lead off that discussion. Yeah. Great. So I'll start with a couple different ideas and we'll see where we go with that. Um, but Lisa, you mentioned a little bit about the WISCARES mm -hmm. initiative um, and the WISCARES clinic that Dr. William Gillis um, and uh, uh, other members within the school have been working together and working with our School of Social Work and also with our School of Pharmacy um, to serve individuals who have pets um, who are in vulnerable or precarious living situations and or who are homeless, who are accessing care for their pets um, and the animals in their lives, but also at the same time when they are accessing that care, they're accessing um, care for self, whether it means in social work, um, some psych psychological help, or care for themselves or thinking about um, what our school of pharmacy or partnerships with other human health uh, providers can provide. 
what I think love about that, there's so many things I could talk about, but what I love specifically about that is that in years one through three of the curriculum, our students are volunteers or their clinic administrators who are working with a population of clients and patients that they wouldn't necessarily see in our teaching hospital in the academic um, setting. And so the students are learning a lot about themselves, a lot about communication skills, leadership skills, and some cultural competence skills during those volunteer sessions or those um, kind of real life sessions in the community. What's also happened in the last year, year and a half, is our fourth year students on their primary care rotation, which is required for all students, or some places they call it community practice, we call it primary care here, they um, will spend a day with the WIS Cares Clinic. And so all fourth year students um, have that opportunity as part of that required rotation to be there. Um, and working with a, a different cultural group than they would see in the teaching hospital. So sure, I think that's sure. a really awesome way of having that as both part of the co-curriculum and the required curriculum in the DBM program. Um, some other opportunities that our students have had in recent past, and will continue to develop in these ways um, with some of our colleagues in the interprofessional health schools. So in our School of Pharmacy and our School of Nursing, in our School of Medicine and Public Health, students have taken courses, I wanna say the name of the course correctly because I always mess it up every time we try to say it. Um, we have a social justice and equity course in healthcare um, that a number of our students have gone through that um, course as participants, but we also have a couple of students who have then served as facilitators and really looking at the role that they as a person and then as a professional, um, can play in a variety of aspects of diversity in working with their clients or working with their patients. Um, so it's a really neat opportunity for students to see what does a, an MD student, how, does, how do they approach that, thinking about their personal lens of different identities that they may have and how does that impact the outcomes of healthcare. Um, same from the vet med student's perspective, the pharmacy student's perspective, and knowing that even within that discipline, everybody has that different lens that they, they see the healthcare outcome coming from. Um, coming up this spring for the first time, they're working on an interprofessional course called uh, LGBTQ in Healthcare. And so thinking about both from a, a client-patient perspective, but also from a provider perspective of how does that lens shape um, the, the care that is, is given to the persons or animals um, and also the flip side of those interactions mm -hmm. um, in the healthcare setting. There's a cool program that we just began about a year and a half ago in Milwaukee that Lynn's going to talk about. Yes, thanks for serving that up. Um, <laughs> so working with the Wisconsin Humane Society, um, our shelter medicine faculty um, have started a program called Pets for Life. And so there's a zip code in the Milwaukee area, and I don't have the zip code off the top of my head, but there's no veterinary clinic in that zip code. And so... A very poor socioeconomic part of Milwaukee. Okay. And so individuals will have door-to-door -door, uh, veterinary care and outreach to that community um, working with that humane society. So our students, um, about 70% about of our students do a two-week shelter medicine um, rotation in their fourth year. And as part of that rotation, many of them will be part of this program as well. And so they actually go out in the community, you know, literally go knocking on doors, going into people's homes and helping take care of their animals. And and very much being exposed to a, a group of people they probably would normally never be exposed to, you know, unless they were working in, in an inner city, relatively poor um, community. 
And for some people, Milwaukee is about an hour from Madison. So okay. letting okay. people know kind of yeah. geography. So it's 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 not that far. Nope. Nope. A little feedback here. So um how are students responding? So the courses, the types of things, um, I hear really positive things. Um, so certainly the courses that I've described are um, very, people choose to take them. Mm-hmm. So there are electives, um, but I have had many students who have gone through some of those elective interprofessional courses that say everyone should take these things. Mm-hmm. This is a really, they're wonderful opportunities to reflect on um, their own values, their own perceptions, their own passions for working with people and their animals. Um, I also know that I hear students, they come alive and they are just so excited when they talk about their their work with Whiskers. And so also knowing that they see really how they can use their knowledge and skill and commitment as a veterinary medical student on, on working with a population of, of people and their animals and knowing how how important that is for them very early in their careers to see how they can have such an impact. What's kind of very cool about that program that I think most of us might realize, but you really might not think about is a lot of these people um, would not access healthcare for themselves. And for a number of different reasons, one, some simple, I have a dog or a cat and they're not going to let me in the clinic and I don't have any place to, for my dog or cat to stay while I'm in it to, um, you know, I'm just not going to go down that path, but, but they absolutely want to take care of their pet. And so the, the partnership, which is so awesome, is that they'll bring their dog or cat in to be treated and, and then be willing to talk to a social worker. And now we have pharmacists involved and now we have nurses involved. So then we can begin to help them with what they need in addition to helping, you know, their, par- their pets with what their pets need. And so I think that it really is a synergistic kind of win-win scenario that they certainly very much value. We now have instituted as part of that program, when somebody has to be in a facility, in a hospital or whatever for a period of time for treatment, we actually have a foster program where we actually take care of the animals and then let them, you know, for the time frame they're there. Sometimes it takes, you know, a time or two to gain the trust that they're actually going to get their animal back, but they do. Or here in Wisconsin, where it can get cold in the winter, there are times where you really want these individuals to go into shelters, human shelters, but they don't allow pets. And so we have a we have a program now during those, you know, let's say five or 10 nights a year that are that cold. We'll actually take their animals for those evenings or days of cold weather so they can go into the shelter. They don't have to sleep outside with their pet. We mm-hmm. take care of their pet for them and then, and then reunite them after, you know, the weather improves. So it's, wow, wow. It, all of those are pretty cool. But it's really important because so the uh, voice, um, the uh, student diversity group just had their leadership retreat in um, at University of Georgia, and they included a uh, community service project. um, And and that project was um, creating kind of self-care packets for um, the homeless in Georgia, and they were working with a shelter, but they included they wanted to include dog food. But again, the shelter does not allow um, pets. And so there was a lot of discussion uh, with the shelter about trying to access those communities 
who don't go to shelters because they have animals. And so, um, you, you know, and, and what it really, those discussions revealed is that there's just so many kind of hidden populations in our, our cities and towns um, who have animals. Um, the people and the animals um, oftentimes are, are invisible. Um, and so um, this is a great program. Care sounds like a really great program at kind of giving visibility um, to those folks, but also meeting some really basic needs. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you see on the horizon? So a handful of things we're working on. Um, one thing that we have been working on this semester um, in conjunction with our faculty and our Department of Counseling and Psychology and our School of Education on campus, um, they have created this really amazing program called Diversity Dialogues. And um, our faculty and staff went through a handful of these diversity dialogues. And it's a facilitated um, dialogue facilitated by someone who's a facilitator participant um, who leads us through a series of questions about diversity um, that are very much about your personal experiences. Um, and then that helps us to talk with each other and, and figuring out early experiences with diversity that are positive, early life as a child experiences with diversity that were perhaps negative, um, because it's easier to talk about the child um, experience of it, there's less judgment, and then really realizing how we have those lenses then that shape our interactions, and really having a, a fun and open uh, dialogue about that, and, and talking about race, and talking about um, gender and talking about gender identity, it was uh, a pretty cool thing. So we did it with a number of faculty and staff in August, um, and I thought it was fun. Mark did it. I did okay. it. Um, we had a good time, and then we've been working on this, and we're pretty excited that we're going to have this for all of our first-year students in a couple of weeks. Um, so we previously used to have panels or seminars as part of first-year orientation. Mm -hmm. And I know from our students, they tell us that they remember about 5% of orientation. Sometimes it's where the restroom is, and that's great. Um, but also knowing that we really think this is really important, and we want it to be a, um, a reflective personal professional development for them, and specifically in working with their classmates and their future colleagues. Um, so we'll be engaged in that this next year. Uh, we've also been working on thinking about how we talk with our admissions committee and other faculty committees to consider aspects differently. We, we do. We have these conversations all the time and have had um, conscious and unconscious bias training for search and screen committees, uh, which Mark implemented when he became dean. Um, and we, we have these dialogues and these discussions, but we can do more. And we can do a better job of that. And so that's also another priority of, of how do we um, have really think about who our students are, who, what do we want our profession to look like, mm -hmm. and how do we make sure that um, we're doing the best work that we can. One thing that, that we're still, I'd say, struggling with, but we're going to continue to focus on is we can require all of our first year students to take diversity dialogues. When we offer diversity dialogues for faculty and staff, not surprisingly, the people that went were the people that already got it. I mean, yeah. not, all of us can learn more, be better, but there are the people you'd expect to be in that room. <laughs> the people that you really think should be in that room didn't volunteer for it. And there's no easy strategy that I know of right now that we can force people to do sure, things sure. that we think that are important for them. So 
other ways I try to communicate broadly across the school. I do a monthly dean's message that comes out every first since mm -hmm. the day I've been dean, first of the month. And we very much try to, at least a couple of those per year, focus, about, focus it on diversity and the importance of diversity, really to try to make our students or faculty or staff, friends of the school or alumni who will get it, at least understand why we believe it is so important and why we so much value diversity in its every form um, with regard to the school and our profession. And I, I think uh, even those people who might not take the diversity dialogue training, at least read that and understand that from a top-down perspective and hopefully from a bottom-up perspective, there's a lot of people that believe in the importance of diversity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, that that's think a common that's issue, issue trying to find yeah. ways of encouraging and enticing. <laughs> I was wondering, since we're on a national podcast, if we could just say the names of people that we think are. No. <laughs> no, I'm doing that. Totally teasing, sorry. <laughs> no shaming on the podcast, no shame. Yeah, I don't believe in shaming. So. We want an inclusive environment as a reminder. <laughs> right. So, um, so looking nationally, what kinds of things can organize veterinary medicine, um, including AAVMC, um, do to help support our members um, as, you know, we go down this path of, we know that you have to kind of demonstrate, um, you know, compliance to the standards, but what can AAVMC do and continue to do to, um, to support our members? So as you know, Lisa, we have kind of, not just me, but we've begun this discussion kind of nationally among the deans uh, at, at this most recent October board of directors meeting at the AVMC headquarters in Washington, D.C. And I know that there'll be discussions that are occurring throughout the year. You know, the interesting thing is when it comes to hiring a faculty and staff, you know, we have very focused training on unconscious bias. And, you know, and at least here, we require that of all search and screen committee members. Uh, and the idea that you create a broad pool of people that you then select from, whether it's a faculty member or staff member, whatever it might be. But the, the place where I have, I wouldn't say, yeah, I guess I'd say less control. So for our, our admissions process, Lynn absolutely meets with the admissions committee and talks about the importance of diversity and what we're trying to look at in this pool of 1,300 candidates or 1,300 applicants that we have to select our 96 students. You know, I talk to them as well at the beginning of the process, but there's there's really no structured training that we provide them similar to what we do for our search and screen committees that enable them to have a better understanding of their own lens, as Lynn was saying, or their own potential biases. Too many, I believe, think I'm gonna be colorblind or gen gender blind or whatever blind. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna select because they've got the highest GRE score and the highest GPA or whatever you might use as your criteria. Um, I absolutely don't believe that that's all that should be part of what you're trying to do as, as far as identifying this kind of synergistic, diverse student class of, for us, 96 people that, that by interacting with, with each other are going to become even better veterinarians and whatever they decide to do in this profession. So what I think AVMC potentially could do is maybe either create um, web-based uh, instructional tools or other um, or materials that you might hand out that I then I can require the admissions committee to have to to look at before 
they begin their deliberations before they begin. If you have an interview, before you begin your interviews, before you begin looking at the group of people that are applying to your institution. And I believe that that likely would enable us to do even a better job as far as um, expanding and enhancing the diversity of our student students here, but maybe students nationally as well. Sure. So, well, I, I guess I'll, I'll tip um, my hand a little bit that we are trying to put together a, a holistic admissions program that um, will include um, some great evidence um, from the literature um, around admissions in the health professions and not just veterinary medicine, but other health professions as well. And um, some, some training opportunities for our member institutions and kind of different ways that um, institutions can practice holistic admissions. Um, so we'll be rolling that out this spring. So stay tuned. So, <laughs> so that's our, our little promo there. Lynn, you were about to say something? I was just going to say, I think continuing to, um, from an AAVMC perspective, continuing to support some of our student leaders and voice, um, that has been a, a wonderful way to change the culture within schools. Um, and knowing that our voice club here has been just fantastic and has been very engaged. And Lisa, you have given them a lot of support over many groups of students who have been in that leadership role. Uh, within the school. So I think having AAVMC and having that connection to um, nationally to the voice board has been really fantastic for our students. You know, here on the UW-Madison campus, and I'm, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of institutions across the country, I'm hopeful not so much true here within the School of Veterinary Medicine, is they just did a climate, climate survey for the whole campus, including students, and not surprisingly, um, individuals that are LGBTQ, and underrepresented minorities um, answer the questions to the climate that they face significantly differently than others. And so we need to continue to stay focused on kind of the climate that they live in on a day-to-day -day basis, certainly within the School of Every Madison Walls, but we've got a whole campus that they interact with. They have a whole community in, in Madison that they interact with as well. And so I think trying to do what we can do, and certainly our campus is trying to do a lot of different things on this front as well, um, to really try to um, change that dynamic so that, you know, as we do further climate surveys over the coming years, that we see less disparity between, you know, a white male than, 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 a, than a, a, you know, a gay male or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that climate, a lot of folks don't understand the impact of that. I mean, that's just kind of your day-to-day, -day, the day-to-day -day soup that you're living in, right? And um, and how that will impact um, your academic performance, your social um, engagement, and all of those kinds of, I mean, just kind of how you move through, through um, the world. And um, I think I referred to earlier that we had um, a voice retreat this weekend. And um, one of the things that uh, Dr. Jim Brandt, the new wellness and diversity director at AVMA and I both spoke about was the interconnectedness of wellness and diversity and kind of understanding that um, everybody's got something that they're dealing with, but there are also some groups that are kind of coming into a situation with some higher risk because of some other stuff that they're just kind of carrying with them. And so, and because of the environment um, that might be hostile towards them. And so this is something I think that we'll be paying um, more attention 
into and kind of talking about and encouraging um, um, student and um, uh, institutions in general to do more, a, a deeper dive on wellness and, um, and its connection to diversity. So, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, and I think it also, we've spent a lot of time talking about students because that's mostly the focus of what I think about and, and a lot of what we're talking about here, but also thinking about our employees, our faculty and staff in some of those uh, marginalized groups or in um, their wellness mm -hmm. um, and, and thinking about how that contributes uh, to uh, what our students' educational environment might be if they are um, sludging through all the things that happen in the day and then that interaction with a student or with a group of students um, and how that might have an impact on the culture or the climate in the school. Sure. In, our, in our strategic priorities in the school, of those seven I talked about earlier, one is focused on climate. And so we purposefully kind of as a starting point did a climate survey locally within the school, not campus-wide, that initially was just faculty and staff, but now it's faculty, staff, and students that we do every two years. And we really try to focus on, you know, it's all anonymous, but at the same time, there's many comments. And then we can tell by groups, you might be an academic staff member focused in research, and we kind of group you in that category or a faculty member or uh, an academic staff member focused in teaching or a classified staff member for us that's in the hospital as a veterinary technician. You know, probably eight or nine different groups, including students, and, and really trying to say, okay, what are they telling us about their experience here at the school, this group of people? And then what can we do over the next two years or, or forevermore to try to um, address the issues that are being raised? Let's first try to understand them and then try to create an environment that might ameliorate them or make those things be better. And we spend a lot of time um, doing that and kind of tracking that. And we'll continue to do that kind of indefinitely and in every two year kind of analysis of what should we focus on next about climate. Every time I say climate, the first thing everybody else says, what are you talking about? I mean, because they're thinking about the climate, you know, like it's hot or cold. And I'm always talking about climate of, you know, how people feel with where they work, where they learn, where they study, those kinds of things. So anything else that uh, we can do here in uh, AAVMC or, um, you know, other organized veterinary medicine? Well, we are um, going to be part of, you want to talk about um, the, the, what we're doing? Here, but this is not this is was instituted by Purdue but yeah so, so Purdue and Michigan State have had a long uh, long-standing excellence in terms of having regional Iverson Bell summits um, in the opposite year of the national mm -hmm. um, Iverson Bell symposium and uh, I think it was about a year or two ago they approached the other Big Ten schools and colleges of veterinary medicine and said hey do you want to play and so we've been working um, together as a planning committee um, with Ohio State Minnesota Wisconsin, Purdue, and Michigan State. And so Wisconsin will host one of those regional summits um, in 2020. So we're excited about that opportunity. And it's also been great to work with those other schools and colleges to get ideas of what's working well, what's working well at Ohio State, what's working well at Purdue, um, and, and sharing those expertise with each other. That's, so that's been pretty cool. That's great. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that, uh, and th this is now just off the top of my head, and I don't know, but, you know, how the AVMC, back to your question, how we interact with the AVMA on this issue and, and what influence we may or may not have with the AVMA about 
the importance of diversity in the profession. And I, and I know there are efforts there, but it, I, I'd say from my perspective as dean of a veterinary school, it's less clear to me what those efforts are from a from the veterinary medical profession from the AVMA side is. And I, if there are, if we have a group of people within the AVMC think about it and say, we did this with a, with accreditation, right? That's yeah. an AVMA Council on Education now partnership with the AVMC. Um, there might be other areas that we could work with the AVMA um, to focus on um, how to improve the diversity of the profession and or support a diverse workforce within veterinary medicine. And, and I don't know off the top of my head what that could be, but I could imagine that we could have influence over that as an AVMC. Sure. Well, I think that that's a great place um, for us to begin our big wrap up. So um, as we start wrapping up the show, what other things are going on at University of Wisconsin at Madison that you'd like to share? I'm sure there's all kinds of cool things outside of diversity. Outside of diversity. Now you threw me a loop. Now I got to read my brain. There's so uh, many things, right? There is. I'll start. Um, because I think there are really cool things, but I think uh, one of the things that I'm I'm very proud of and happy to see is we um, this had our official unveiling or opening of a student learning space this fall, um, last spring, and then it's really been used quite a bit this fall. And part of the student learning space has an active learning classroom, an expanded clinical skills area, um, but the part there's some other parts that I'm I'm pretty proud of. Um, there's a, an additional counselor's office. So we now have three um, individuals who provide mental health counseling to our veterinary medical students, and they are all fantastic, do a great job, and really committed to um, giving that support to our veterinary medical students in, in the individuals who are hired by the university and who are providing excellent care and support to those um, our students. We also have as part of that um, student learning space, we have a, a meditation room and a mindfulness room. And that has been pretty cool to see how students are starting to use that throughout the day, learning how to practice mindfulness, learning how to meditate um, in a space and really thinking about that as a personal and professional skill that they can then take into practice in, in addressing some of their own personal wellness and then hopefully having an impact on their clinic or their colleagues with whom they're working and ultimately we're hoping has a, a positive impact on practice long-term for the individual students, but then also all, all people. We've actually spent a lot of time in the last two years, probably more, but certainly a lot of time in the last two years really focused on our faculty, staff, and students' mental health, um, kind of talking to them about work-life balance, which is challenging for a veterinary medical student um, and some of our clinicians, but still trying to talk to them or work with them about that. We've had we've had weekly or bi-weekly mindfulness sessions throughout the year that students could attend, faculty, staff could attend, um, really trying to from enable people to feel good about the ability that they can take care of themselves, that they don't have to be being a former clinician, a slave in the clinic, that they can actually still be a successful clinician, but still have a life outside of working in the hospital and really spending a lot of time in those areas. We've from the school's perspective, has spent a lot of time in the last five years on a lot of different areas um, on our kind of research success, on what we do as far as our students, on what we do as far as our scholarships. You know, just examples are uh, 
our research expenditures has, have grown by 60% over the last five years. Our scholarship supports increased by 100% in the last five years. Um, our national, our average debt load here, which was at about 118,000 five years ago, has declined to 108. Oh, wow. Uh, whereas the national average has gone from about 128 to 181. And so we're the, we have the second lowest debt to income ratio behind Texas A&M in the country and what and bottom two or three and in total indebtedness. So I think um, we're spending a lot of efforts focusing on that piece. And I, and I think on that indebtedness piece, and I know that's a big part of mental wealth, mental health as well. Lynn and other of our faculty have really spent a lot of time with financial literacy. And, you know, I think one of the probably the two biggest impacts for our debt to decline by about was about 18 percent has declined over the last five years, even though our tuition has gone up. Uh, it is twofold. One is we have very structured financial literacy training now for our students so that they understand what they're doing when they take loans out. They can build a budget. Um, the other piece that was important for us is we used to have our scholarship loans and awards committee from the school, the awards we give out, a meet in the fall and make those awards in the end of the fall. And then the students would have that support in the spring. As everybody probably knows, when you get your financial aid from campus, it happens in the summer before school starts. And you get awarded what you're going to get in the fall and what you get in the spring. And so what we think happened is people didn't know what they're going to get from us. They'd accept their award for fall and spring, even though they then found out in December or November what they're going to get for us. They didn't change what they were going to receive as a loan in the spring. So what we've done is flip it. We now do that, make that decision making or do that decision in the summer at the same time that they hear from financial aid. In addition, we've increased our scholarship support for our students by a million dollars in the last five years, too. And then it enables them to say, well, I don't need to have that extra 5000 for the next two semesters because I'm going to get that from the school. And so they'll take out less on loans, I think. So I think that's been really those two pieces, I think, have been really impactful as far as our students indebtedness here. Wow, that's great. So, yeah, we're looking at some new research um, in, in our office, um, and uh, I just presented some of this last week at uh, the AVMA Econ Summit, where 30% of our um, our applicants are um, coming from low um, socioeconomic backgrounds. They're Pell grant recipients or Pell eligible, um, and one, one in every four of our applicants are first generation. And there's clearly a lot of overlap with those two groups as well. And so thinking, um, again, even bringing it back to diversity, thinking about um, access and affordability and making sure that um, folks um, kind of understand um, um, how financing higher education works, because, you know, they may or may not get that in the level of detail that they need at the undergraduate level. The other piece that we pushed hard, hard on, and I know, Lisa, you and I have been in discussions about this, is to try to have more students admitted um, earlier. So mm -hmm. typically, maybe after three years. And as as you know, and maybe um, your the folks viewing the podcast know, majority of the debt that our students accrue is while they're in veteran medical school. But my argument that I've said publicly and to you as well, Lisa, is that somebody's accruing that debt if it's as an undergraduate. So, you know, my view is if they can get in after three years or maybe even after two, if, if they're appropriately mature and have the right mm -hmm. background, um, that maybe those families will be able to afford to put to pay for the first two years of veteran medical school so sure. that their their loans might be less in that time frame because 
somebody's accruing that eight years or seven years or six years worth of debt. And I and and Lynn and her group here have really looked at, okay, is there a difference in success here if you come after with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or three years of undergraduate? And at least here, and you can talk to that, we don't see any correlation. Yeah. The old thinking here was they're not mature enough until they've done, you know, X. They had to be 22 before they'd be there. And and, and there's no data, at least here, that supports that that's an issue. I'm going to add to that. Yep. I, I agree with that. I also know that we very much um, pay attention to that maturity piece and that goal orientation piece. And like people know for sure um, that this is what they want to do. Um, I think something also mm-hmm. that you were talking about um, debt, um, I think something that our school and the university also has scholarship funds specifically targeting for underrepresented minority or um, diverse student populations. And so both from the UW system um, perspective from campus and from um, donors within the school. So we do talk about um, kind of what, what types of barriers there may have been in place for a student to take a full course load um, or in terms Mm -hmm. of GPA or in terms of um, taking out more loans. We talk about that very openly and honestly in our scholarship loans and awards committee as well. And so thinking about how how do we consider that as part of when when making Mm -hmm. awards towards students. And so students tell us a lot in their application for the scholarship um, awards that we will be um, giving to them during the summers. The other piece that you were talking about is, that fortunately for us, the UW-Madison campus has just made in the last two months a commitment that first-generation students that come out of a two-year program will have their first year here and maybe both years here after they transfer free, oh, tuition-free wow. for first-generation students. So there's really been a commitment from our chancellor sure. from the UW-Madison campus to really try to because we, if you know about Wisconsin at all, you know, we're up there, you know, above Illinois, but it's, there's a large rural community over like 80% of this state. I mean, there's some population density in Madison, Milwaukee, and La Crosse, and a few other places, but um, it's a very rural community, a lot of first-generation kids. And so mm-hmm. it's really a commitment by the campus to try to serve those people and try to, because you're right, they, they, have, they're, um, they have issues, issues with affordability, and this will at least take that piece of it away yeah. or help take that piece of it yeah. away. Well, it sounds like some exciting stuff happening uh, up there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> up Illinois. Up there above Illinois, below Canada. That's us. Well, I really thank you both for um, spending some time with me this afternoon talking about accreditation and kind of um, what you all are doing at uh, UW-Madison. And um, with that, I think that we'll go ahead and wrap the show. Um, We'll be putting out um, this episode by audio in probably another week or so. Um, And our next episode of the show, which will likely be um, by recording only, will be about um, uh, veterinary medicine in Appalachia. So we'll be doing, I'll be doing a recording. I'll be visiting um, Lincoln Memorial University um, in another week or so, and we'll be doing a recording down there. So with that, we will bid everyone good evening. Thank you again to my guests and we'll see you next time.
Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Take care.